Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Procurement Innovation Lab at the Homeland Security Department is entering what it calls a third phase. This is where the lab takes everything it's learned over the last several years about changing the culture of procurement and begins applying it at a deeper programmatic level. For more specifics on the initiatives in Phase 3, Executive Editor Jason Miller spoke to the lab's digital transformation lead, Scott Simpson. So I think the beginning of Phase 3, just like the beginning of Phase 1 and the beginning of Phase 2, is going to be inward-facing. And and I'm not going to try to speak out of turn for our director or anything like that, but DHS is our mission, and making sure the DHS mission is met is always going to be our number one priority. And so we are going to start small, fail small, learn fast, before we take this out on the road to other federal agencies. And so we're starting with, you know, in-house projects, with what are some of our policies that are getting in the way of our acquisition workforce? What are some of the bigger things that trip people up that we can work on together to find a common solution? In FY22, we deployed the Pill Idea Competition. And one of the first Pill Idea Competitions was sponsored by our policy office. And we have uh, the Appendix G process Uh, which looks at um, uh, security. And it was a real process to go through Appendix G. Uh, And so we got all this feedback about, well, how can we streamline this process? And that's what really helped us start thinking about the bigger picture. And so I think that we're going to start tackling those issues uh, at the home front. And then once we get a bit more information, that's when we can start talking to people and facilitating them at other agencies to say, hey, this is our experience here at home. This is how you can do it over there. And it's similar to the approach that we had in phase two. Uh, in phase two, we started with the, uh, the coaching clinic, and we started coaching uh, external teams. And our hope with coaching external teams was always that we were going to coach the coach. And so if we went to a GSA, for example, we would coach the GSA team just like we would coach our DHS team. But there would be a, uh, a coach in training on that team, someone in the right seat, right? And so as you get ready to land, that coach takes over, so that the next one that needs to take off, that coach can be on the board. And it's, you know, spreading the wealth, uh, spreading the good news so that, what's the old adage there? You, you give a man a fish, right? Eat Teach for him a day. to fish, right. Teach him to fish, and they're innovating forever now. So we're trying to spread that good news like that. And so that, that leads right into our phase three. I did an interview with Army Contracting Command up in Aberdeen, Maryland. And the person who runs Aberdeen Contracting said, First thing I did when I got there is I looked at our policies and said, why do we have these policies? Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you feel like, and and maybe because you did this review already once, sometimes policies come up for no reason or because they come up for, uh, it's, well, something bad happened once and now we have a new policy, now that policy, and five years later we don't remember why we have a policy, but Mm -hmm. we do, and everyone follows it, and that can bring down the uh, the, the time to, to get procurement out. Do you, is that part of the hope here is to look at some of those policies and say, okay, what, do we, what don't we need anymore? What, what can we say, whatever problem it was solving, we fixed long ago? Yes, exactly. And we're really looking to our, our users to, to identify those policies for us. You know, I, I've been out of contracting for four years now. I haven't had a warrant or signed anything in, in a while. Uh, and so, and it's sad for me to say that because I really liked having the warrant and signing all that stuff. It was terrifying but fun. And so we're really looking for them to say, hey, this, this policy is in the way. Why was it there? And we can bring everyone together then, and we can start answering that question about why was it put in place? Is it still needed to be in place? If it is, what can we do to, to streamline that? 
Uh, and so one of the big things that we're hoping to do in um, FY24 is we're looking at having something like a hack the policy, where we say, hey, we've heard from users that uh, X policy is, uh, is problematic. Let's get the policy owner on board. Let's get some of these users on board. Let's bring legal on board. And let's all talk about how we can address this policy so that everyone's concerns are met. Do you already have folks have a list that they've given? Here, Scott, oh, yeah. we got to do these 10 first or these 12 first. We, I think everyone's got a backlog of policies, right? I think that's, that's probably the, the frustration that is just uh, that grows among acquisition folks is, why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'll just do it. Yep. And, and well, have you ever asked why? No, because I'm too busy and right. I just have to get this, whatever I'm buying, out the door because the mission needs it. Mm-hmm. The other side of, of phase three, I guess you, you talked about, is this idea of culture change. And, and I think that's the other piece of, of things you can do to go faster. Where is the biggest obstacles remaining on culture? Is it just the straight education or are there real you know, concerns about, well, if I do something wrong, I'll get in trouble? And like, yeah. where, where do you see the big uh, obstacles still? So I think the big obstacle is unlearning, actually. There's this concept of being an infinite learner. And it's really hard to be an infinite learner. And being an infinite learner means having the ability to learn something, unlearn that, and learn the next thing. And for so long in in our work series, we were not infinite learners. We were focused on, here's what it says, here's what the FAR is, you learn this, and then once you learn that, you can apply it forever. And, And so it's unlearning the learning process that we had in place. And so, you know, like when I was coming up as a young contracting specialist... I would go to my contracting officer and say, hey, I want to do this within this section of the FAR, but there doesn't say anything. And so she would say, well, where does it say that? Go and look to that section and apply that. And so I would turn to FAR 15 to contracting and negotiations and apply that to an 8.4, you know, GSA acquisition, civil acquisition. And that's, that's not what I should be doing, right? When I'm looking at the FAR, when there is no answer, because it doesn't have the answers to everything, I need to say, okay, I can engage my own critical thinking now, and I can innovate. And so part of it is unlearning that process that I talked about, and part of it is learning that I have permission to do that. And I'm not going to get in trouble for that. Um, If I take the, the leap, you need to have the courage to lead. And so we're trying to instill upon the workforce that courage to go and take the leap and, and the permission to innovate and the ability then to re-engage their critical thinking, uh, which for so long has been kind of pushed back on when you say, hey, I've got this new idea. Uh, and someone says, no, that's not how we've done it before. Let's just do it that way because we know we didn't get a protest or whatever else. You talk about training. You talk about the, one of the things that PILL does is the coaching clinic you mentioned. Uh, you're looking at the next level of training. Talk a little bit about the, the self-service option that you're starting to, to, to discuss and see how that could work. Last year, we trained uh, over 1,600 people in just one of our courses. We know that there's a demand for that, but we also know that people learn in different ways. And so for some people, like learning in a classroom is, is good, and some people learning in an online class is good. Uh, but we want to push that out more to learning at your own pace, right? And so we're working with our Homeland Security Acquisition Institute to find the right learning module to, uh, to keep pushing forward in that, that kind of learning environment. What does that look like? What is the content like? Because one of the things we're really heavy into is we don't want someone just sitting there listening or watching slides and click, click, click. We want it to be engaging, right? We know that um, adult learners learn by doing. And so we want to keep engaging them throughout the class via um, 
whatever uh, new methodologies they have, scenario-based learning, uh, reactive learning, going out and doing it learning and coming back. So we're working with uh, our Homeland Security Acquisition Institute to, to figure out what is that right first step. We're hoping in the next FY we push out at least one module, uh, and once we get that one module done, then we've learned how to do it for other modules, and we can start building a whole series of um, innovation modules to like let out for people. Uh, our first couple of ideas for that are um, a module around how to facilitate uh, an evaluation. Because believe it or not, that's not something that's taught often in our regular kind of con courses. Uh, but it would be, you know, a scenario-based kind of thing. You know, X, Y, and Z is buying uh, this thing. You're coming in to do the evaluation, and here's your evaluators, and here's what you're going to do. Here's how you walk through that. And now you can take that, and the next day you can apply that to your own evaluation. Similarly, we're looking at one about uh, far swim lanes and the, the flexibility that you have in each of them uh, in an 8.4 federal supply schedule versus a, a 16.505 uh, fair opportunity. And what do those two things look like? How are they different? How are they the same? And if, if I only have, uh, you know, an hour and I just want to go through 8.4, I can stop there and then move on. But uh, those are the kind of the first two things we're going to start tackling. Uh, but we do really want to stay engaged with people. We don't want them just click kind of through and, and get their CLPs. We want them to learn something. And so we're going to be working with our users uh, and our customers first to find out, hey, is this something that you're interested in? How are you going to stay involved? And then uh, doing small pilots refining, iterating, and then pushing back out. Scott Simpson, Digital Transformation Lead for the Procurement Innovation Lab at the Homeland Security Department, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. 
So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on 
on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor and I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years and I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people and even your title, Chief People Officer. What does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title, Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, 
I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. 
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.